The apostles and the brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, You went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter began and explained everything to them precisely as it had happened. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds of the air. Then I heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, Surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up into heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could oppose God? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, each according to his ability, decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Would you join me in a word of prayer as we begin this morning? Father in heaven, we praise you for your church over which Christ is the head. We praise you for sending your son Jesus For his blood, which serves as the purchase price for your church. Your word speaks often of the church. 
My prayer today is that we would have ears to hear what the Spirit says to this particular church here at Hope in Christ. And I pray that we would have eyes to see what your Spirit is up to, not only here at Hope in Christ. Father, I pray that you would grant us eyes to be able to see what you're doing around the world, wherever your gospel is being proclaimed. I pray for Christ people to be found today, Lord. You know the great need for Christ people today. These Christians, as we'll come to see here in the text today. Father, I pray that you would show us and remind us what it means to be a Christ people in the midst of a largely Christ-less culture. We thank you, Father, that you are always at work. And I pray this church here at Hope in Christ would be at work where you would have us to be at work, working in the manner in which you would call us to work. I pray this morning you would open our minds to grasp the truth that you have for us in this particular text. And Father, we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as good as things have been lately in the book of Acts, and they've been pretty good, haven't they? Amen. If you've been here for a while, you've seen some of the wonderful things that have happened in the book of Acts. All the biblical conversions taking place, the evidence of the Holy Spirit moving and at work. Today's text takes the good one step further. Here at the end of Acts chapter 11, the door that God began opening back at the end of, beginning of chapter 8 on the heels of Stephen's death and kept on opening through Acts 10 when Peter was in the home of Cornelius and the Holy Spirit fell upon those in his home and God has just been swinging wide this, this door. There's a shift going on here in the text. The church at Jerusalem is, is going to hear about a church of Christ. I'm not talking about a denomination. I'm talking about a church where Jesus Christ is the head. Okay? Through the power of the Holy Spirit, this church planted by God himself in Antioch of all places. Antioch. Now, Antioch is about to serve in the text as we keep going and make our way through Acts. It's going to serve as the main hub for missionary efforts, which will begin officially when we arrive at Acts chapter 13. Okay? But the stage is now being set where we're at here in Acts chapter 11. How, how does the church here in Antioch come together? What, what's God doing in Antioch? I mean, since the church in Jerusalem had been persecuted and scattered back in Acts chapter 8, what had God been doing? What had God been preparing in Antioch in the interim? And why Antioch? You see, church, there are some questions we need to ask of the text as we read the text. Some very helpful observation kind of questions. And oftentimes the text itself will answer the questions if we but ask them. Okay, so I encourage you as you read on your own to ask these questions. These are very good questions to be asking of the text. You see, to the Jew in Jerusalem, Antioch in the first century would have been considered utterly pagan. <laughs> utterly pagan. If, they, if you put forward something in Antioch, something's going on in Antioch. Now, you see, we need to remember, when you fast forward back to what happened at the beginning of, of Acts 10, this news in Caesarea. When they heard about what was going on in Caesarea, it took the grace of God at work and some spirit-orchestrated explaining on behalf of Peter to grant some understanding and acceptance of what God was doing among the Gentiles, right, in Caesarea. Now, we got to remember, Caesarea was located within Palestine. Antioch, however, was not. 
Okay? Geographically, it's important you see this on the map and understand this. Culturally, politically, there's a lot of uh, parts to this that we need to have some kind of grasp on from a context. Okay? Standpoint. Caesarea, or excuse me, um, Antioch was located some 300 miles north-northwest of Jerusalem. 300 miles, that's a long way. About 15, 20 miles inland of the Mediterranean Sea. And this would be the place in the midst of a variety of people groups. Lots of different people groups here in Antioch. We had Jews, there was a Jewish community there. We had Arabs, it was in Syria, the region of Syria, Antioch, had some Arabs, had some Greeks, had some Romans, had a little Persian influence as well, okay? A little mixture in Antioch. And reading about the cultural and political context of Antioch, it reminded me of something. I was drawn to um, the book of Revelation, and and I read these verses in Revelation chapter 7, and I believe Revelation 7 9 and 10 are helpful as we get into this text today. John is giving a picture of his vision that he's seeing. Remember, most of Revelation is about what's yet to come. And he says here in Revelation 7, After these things I looked and behold a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You know, I wondered as I was reading that and was drawn to that, I was wondering here in Acts 11, if in God's perfect knowledge and his perfect wisdom, if he orchestrated events in Antioch, which was, by the way, the third largest city in the Roman world at the time, behind Rome itself and behind Alexandria, okay, Egypt. And this diverse group of people, this melting pot, if you will, of cultures, a business city, a main trading post. It was the hub of people that were traveling. Oftentimes they had to come through Antioch. They were coming from the west, going east, or from the east to go west. It was the place to be. Amidst what had been a Christless culture in many ways, God moves mightily and establishes a Christ people in the Christless culture. Novel idea. And in so doing, it serves, I believe, as a reminder of the kind of people who are going to be worshiping the Lord around the throne and in the midst of the Lamb. A great multitude which no one could number. All nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. It seems like the Lord is teaching us something today, church. Right here in this text. If the makeup around the throne consists of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues. If, it, if all these are, are gathered together saying salvation belongs to our God. Then, as Peter says just a few verses back in Acts 11, who are we to stand in the way of what God's doing? You see, Acts is the history of the church. It's movement forward and outward. 
The bulk of Revelation is pointing ahead to what is yet to come. And in the interim, it would be prudent, I believe, on our end to consider what God has spoken about His church, about the makeup of His church, about those who are going to be with Him around the throne of grace. You see, what this does, church, in part, is remove a lot of the fences. It removes a lot of the walls that have been so conveniently erected in today's church. And I want you to hear me on this. I'm not advocating the removal of sound doctrine. This is not some free-for-all, anyone gets in, everything goes mentality. Okay? I want to be clear on that. There needs to be a holding fast to the pattern of sound teaching. There needs to be a place for fellowship and prayer and breaking of the bread. All these things we've talked about in Acts 2, things we're to be devoted to as a church. But you know, the more I read Acts, the more I see, for God so loved the world. That's what I see when I read the book of Acts. For God so loved the world. Yes, he loved me and gave himself for me. Praise the Lord he did that. But he also gave me some instructions about making disciples of all the nations. Why would he have me be concerned with all the nations? Short answer, it's God's plan. It's God's plan. Why would Jesus speak the words in Acts 1.8? Calling his disciples to be witnesses to him first in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then to the very end of the earth. I mean, let's remember, these guys, many of them were fishermen, local guys, common men, and yet they were going to get this message out. How were they going to get it out? With the power from on high. They were going to take the power from on high, get the message out to the very end of the earth. You see, God, this is an example of how God uses the weak, he uses the common, he uses the ordinary to accomplish his purposes. And not only does he use these fishermen, but his plan is to use you, church, His plan is to use you, each one of you, part of a body, to communicate his message to people who need to know his son, Jesus Christ. And that message is intended to reach all the nations. God is using Peter and the apostles. He's preparing Saul. He's using his servant Barnabas here in the text today. The work of God, this is important, the work of God today counts toward the picture that's painted in Revelation chapter 7. Have you ever thought about it that way? That what God does through you today, reaching one here, reaching one over there, planting seeds of the gospel over here, contributing to the needs of the brethren when they arrive as you are able, bringing the word of God to bear on your circumstances and the circumstances of those around you. You are presently a work in progress, an ambassador of God, calling all men to this one God through the accomplished work, the finished work of Jesus Christ. The picture of all tribes and nations and tongues and peoples. The work that you do today on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ contributes to the picture that's painted there. That struck me this week. In the limited amount of time that I have and that you have here, we have opportunity. Opportunity to get his word out. You see, understanding the big picture, seeing all those folks around the throne, around the, in the presence of the Lamb of God, that, that's, to me that's motivation, that's encouragement to persevere in the work that God has given to His church. And I believe it should also serve as a wake-up call to see people through a biblical lens, not through some denominational fence. 
Well, there's additional news coming in the text to the church in Jerusalem. The question is, how's Jerusalem going to handle the news that comes to them this time? Right? They've heard some news. There's been a lot of news coming back to Jerusalem. How are they going to respond this time? When, when, see, when, when God is about his work of planting his Christ people in the midst of Christless cultures, what, what is our response to that? What work has he called us to? I would like for us to look at the text and see what the Lord has to say here. First of all, I'd like us to see Christ's people preaching the word. That's 19, 20, and 21. There's some Christ people preaching the word. The question here, how does the, how does the Christian witness from Acts 1-8, right? The big idea theme of the book. How does the Christian witness move, move outward from Jerusalem to Antioch? And what is the effect of such a witness? Well, we see right here at the beginning in 19, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen. Pause right there in our reading. Right there we ought to pause and we ought to go back to the moment where that has occurred in Acts chapter 8. Look at 8 verse 1. Saul was consenting to his death, Stephen's. At that time a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Flip back to chapter 11. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen. Do you see we're in the same place here? We're in the same, we're talking about the same thing here. But we're getting additional information here. Not only were these folks, the church that is, not only were they scattered into Judea and Samaria, but here in verse 19 of Acts 11, we see that some traveled as far as Phoenicia. Phoenicia was along the coast. If you're looking on a map of the Mediterranean area, Two familiar cities probably in Phoenicia that you might recognize, Tyre and Sidon. Familiar, familiar city names in the region of Phoenicia. And it says they went to Phoenicia, Cyprus, which was that island not too far out off in the, in the Mediterranean, off the coast. In fact, if you look at these on a map, it's sort of like a triangle. You have Phoenicia right here, you have Cyprus out here, and you have Antioch up here. So if you just... For all you math people, you can kind of, it's a triangle there, essentially is what we're talking about geographically. All further north of what we've talked about previously in Caesarea, okay? All north on the map. But some of these people traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. Now, again, making observations of the text, making observations of the text. Remember that many Greek-speaking Jews in particular were scattered out of Jerusalem. Many of the church itself was scattered out of Jerusalem, but many of the Greek-speaking Jews in particular, because Stephen was one of those, right? It was martyred. And some of these folks traveled as far as those places we just mentioned here in the text. That piece of information is, is valuable information. And we see what they did when they arrived. They were preaching the word which lines up with what it says in Acts 8, chapter four, 8, verse 4. It says they went scattered and they went everywhere preaching the word. So these folks that are scattered into these areas of Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, they're doing the same thing. They're preaching the word. That's nothing new. But what we ought to notice in Acts eleven nineteen is the indirect object. To whom are they preaching? The text says to no one but the Jews only. Hmm. You ought to pause there for just a moment. What's just happened in Acts 10 and 11 up to this point? Right? Do you remember what's happened? In, in a nutshell, using the words in verse 18, God has granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. 
So in light of recent events in Caesarea, we know that the preached word of Jesus Christ has borne fruit and a harvest of souls has been divinely orchestrated. And it's always divinely orchestrated, isn't it? Always is. He's always at work behind that. And yet here we read that there are three other locations people traveled after being scattered from Jerusalem. Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch. They preached the word in those places, but they preached to no one but Jews only. That sounds a little odd in light of what you've just read up to this point in the text. They evidently hadn't heard the word that we just read about in Acts chapter 11. Verse 18. See, these are questions that we need to be asking and and observations we need to be making as we come to the text. We keep observing the text. We see some of them. We see where they're from. Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus. Notice, that, notice what they were preaching. The Lord Jesus. And you look at the first verse. Excuse me, the first word in verse 20. But. There's a contrast here. You see, these, these men that, that had scattered, they were preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But. The text says some of them were from Cyprus and Cyrene. And for whatever reason, at this time, they traveled to Antioch. They were in Antioch. And while in Antioch, they spoke with Hellenists. They spoke with Greek-speaking Jews. About what? They preached the Lord Jesus. Now, there's some debate on whether or not these... Here in verse 20, they spoke to the Hellenists. Did they speak to the Greek-speaking Jews or did they speak to the Greeks themselves? The nationals. Some debate over what, in the context of that. You know what, I I don't know, um, honestly, if it makes a big, huge difference in the text. They're preaching the Lord Jesus. I believe the point here is this, that God moved his Christ people where he wanted them to be at a time when he was about to do a mighty work through them and transform through, how is he going to transform? Through the preached word, through his word, what had been a predominantly Christ-less culture in Antioch. You see, his word is coming. These men are coming from Cyprus and Cyrene. And they're coming and they're preaching this word to this group of Greeks. These Greek-speaking Jews, perhaps, in Antioch. And Acts eleven twenty one gives us the result. The hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number believed and turned to the Lord. See, a good number of those scattered from the church in Jerusalem were Hellenist Jews, Greek-speaking Jews. Stephen and Philip were two of those Greek-speaking Jews. And the persecution that targeted arose, followed around this man named Jesus in general. But if you were a Greek-speaking Jew, you in particular were getting persecuted at that point in time. I find it interesting that God uses these Greek-speaking Jews from Cyrene and and Cyprus and he plants them in a Greco-Roman culture at just about this time to reach other Hellenists and Greeks with the gospel. You see, the emphasis here in the proclamation was the Lord Jesus. We need to understand something here. In Antioch, one of the challenges there was this temple that they had in Antioch, this temple named Daphne. It was uh, very perverse. Sexual immorality was rampant in the city. People would travel to Antioch to spend time at the temple of Daphne. 
It was very immoral, an immoral place to be. It was a business place. Lots of trade passed through this area. But needless to say that Antioch was searching, seemed to be seeking something. They were searching for something to satisfy. Lots of different people searching for lots of different things to satisfy these different cravings and these different desires. Church, isn't that the way the world is today? We got so many kinds of people searching for so many different kinds of things. You know, one writer in light of this was saying that many were attempting to find, they had these mystery cults and and things of that going on there in, in Antioch and Many were attempting to find in these various mystery cults a divine Lord who could guarantee salvation and immorality, immortality excuse me, to his devotees. Now the pagans of Antioch were assured that what they vainly sought in those quarters could be secured through the Son of God who had lately become man, suffered death and conquered the grave in Palestine. You see, when the preached word came to those in Antioch, the Lord accomplished a great work, showing the people there, many of them for the first time, what it means to have the Lord in their life. You see, the Lord spoken of through the preached word and and the one name that has the power to save. I want you to think of the approach because as you read through Acts, and, and especially on the missionary journeys later on, you see different approaches to preaching the word depending upon where Paul might be in a particular location. But you see here, in this case in Antioch, a great number believed and turned to the Lord. And tired, it seems, of searching for a Lord and a master to hold on to, the Greeks in Antioch heard the word preached. Think about it. This word that was preached that came to town, we don't even know the names of these people. There's some men from Cyprus and Cyrene. I love that. I don't even know who they are. Praise the Lord, they came though. The Lord sent them. Don't have to know their names. But the Lord did a work through them, church. Their obedience. They came and they preached the Lord Jesus. They received Christ as their new Lord and Master. And see, you know, when you read about these things in the text, spiritual transformation, conversion, It's so encouraging to read about in the text. But to participate in it, the level seems to go up. How many of you have participated in something like this? You've been a part of being able to speak the word. And you've been a part of the fruit of what comes out from that. You see people's lives change. Kind of ramps up the encouragement and the excitement and the enthusiasm when you yourself are involved in it. We ought to all be excited and enthusiastic about hearing one who comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ. But when we actually have a part in it, that fires us up, motivates us to move and do it and and go and walk in it even further. You know, even thinking about that time in your own life when Jesus became your master, your Lord, your Savior. That's a glorious time to recall. You know, this past Wednesday, I, I, received, I received a phone call from a referee friend of mine. I actually saw that he had called on my phone, and he had left me a voice message, but I didn't listen to the voice message. I just went ahead and called him and didn't know what he was wanting, so I called him back. And what I heard when I spoke with him was so encouraging to my soul. I, I had this it's fit into the text here, and I want to be able to share this, because he, he called to let me know that he had accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. Those were pretty much his words. 
And he wanted to call me, not only to let me know what had happened, but he wanted to call me and to tell me that, that, that I had been an influence in his life and that he had noticed something different in the way that I went about my work. Church, I don't share that to do this. I, I don't. I share it hopefully to be a motivation and encouragement for each one of you to do the same thing wherever the Lord has planted you. I tell you this because you too have a part to play in the gospel. This gospel preached in Antioch is the same gospel needed with your co-worker, the same gospel needed with your friend, your children, your extended family members. The news of a transformed life, of one crossing over from death to life, this is the fruit of obedience to what God has called us to in Christ Jesus. Christ's people need to be about the business of preaching the word. They did it in Antioch, and they need to be doing it here. They need to be doing it here in Pendleton. They need to be doing it in Indianapolis. They need to be doing it in Arlington, in Knightstown. Let me just go through here, some of these cities here we've got. We've got Marion, Shirley, Carthage, Fishers. Wherever you're at, this word needs to go forth. This is not just information to go, wow, what a great story. This is encouragement for us to get in the game, to be a part of the work. It's exciting work. Wherever God has planted his people, his preached word needs to be spoken. Do the people in your community know that you are a follower of Jesus? Christ's people teaching the word. Look at 22 through 26. News of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. So news comes. And we, we see in Acts eight fourteen, news came to Jerusalem at that time about Samaria, remember? And they sent Peter and John. Acts chapter 11, news comes to Jerusalem about the Gentiles receiving the word. And we, we see the response from those of the circumcision. And they contend with Peter when he arrives in Jerusalem. How are they going to respond this time? We don't get a whole lot of explanation as to how they arrived at their decision. But the text says that they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And Barnabas, upon arrival, the text says, sees the grace of God at work. Evident in Antioch. He sees the grace. Here's an observation question. What is it to see the grace of God at work? Huh? Do you ever think about that? He saw the grace of God. What did he see? Well, I believe that Barnabas saw evidence of changed lives, characteristic of being filled with the Holy Spirit. I believe he saw Christ's people walking in newness of life, speaking wonderful words of life to one another, living as one of Christ's people in what had been a Christless culture. Imagine Barnabas walking into Antioch, observing a bunch of new creations in Christ. I don't believe it would be hard to notice the change. The spiritual transformation, the way they speak to one another, the way they live among one another. I was thinking about that and wondering about when people come to hope in Christ, wondering if they see this grace of God evident here 
in his place. Anything different about this Christ people gathered here in this place? I hope they see God's grace evident in the life of this church family. Well, text says he was glad. He arrived in Antioch and he was glad. He saw what was going on. He was glad. Praise the Lord that Barnabas was glad when he saw the grace of God at work. He doesn't come. He doesn't contend with what God has done. Nor does he caution them about getting circumcised first. Nor does he caution them about all these little little things they need to do and make sure it happens before they can really become a Christian. Barnabas is glad. He was glad. He rejoiced at what God was doing in the lives of those there in Antioch. And we've got to remember, and we go back even to the introduction of Barnabas in this book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, verse 36. And Joseph, or Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement. I love this part. This is great. Son of encouragement. What's the text say here? He came, he saw the grace of God, he was glad. And what did he do? The son of encouragement encouraged. That's what he did. He encouraged. He encouraged them all with purpose of heart, that they should continue with the Lord. Not only was he glad for what God was doing, but he encouraged them to abide continually with the Lord and to do so with purpose of heart. If there was ever a right man for the role of encouragement, Barnabas was it. Maybe the church at Jerusalem got this one right. Sent the right messenger. Because we see examples from scripture where when we send wrong messengers, we come back with disaster results. Remember in the Old Testament when they sent those spies out? Ten were bad and two were good, the song says. Here they send out a a delegate, a representative from Jerusalem. And he's the right man, it seems, for this particular job, this particular work. Here are these new converts to the Lord, and just when they need encouragement, just when they need support to walk in the truth, Barnabas comes along, nurturing them in the faith. The text says Barnabas was a good man. He was full of the Holy Spirit and faith. The full of the Holy Spirit and faith reflect why he was such a good man. Right? He wasn't a good man just... You know, we sometimes use that word just very casually. He's a good person. He's a good guy. No. When the Bible here says he's a good man, characteristic of what they're saying when he says he's a good man, he was full of the Holy Spirit. He was full of faith. And church, we need more men, more good men, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, men who get more excited and glad about the work of God than their own bank accounts or their own work projects or their own hobbies or their own football teams, or whatever it may look like. Men who move when the Lord calls them. Men who rejoice when God is working somewhere else. Think about this. It's easy to rejoice when God is working in your life, when He's working in your family, when He's working in this particular local church of which you're a part. But are you enthusiastic? Are you encouraging the when God is working somewhere else? Barnabas seems to be one of the results. And a great many people were added to the Lord. People were added to the Lord. Do you realize, church, how many people? This, this is a light bulb moment here. We, we see this in the text. Do you realize how many people are influenced by encouragers who walk with the Lord? I believe God 
God was moving here in Antioch, and Barnabas sees a place for an encouraging word. He speaks, and once again, we read about many people being added to the Lord. Church, we've got to understand something. There are, there, there are probably people in your sphere of influence, people you come across all the time. Some people may be right now on the edge of receiving Christ as Lord. You might be the one who says a word of encouragement who models Christ, who shows compassion. The Lord has gifted you to speak on His behalf, to be His witness. He can do, and the text verifies this very thing, He brings about the life change, but He uses available vessels to preach and to teach and live out His Word in the lives of others. Well, we've got to think about the text here. All these people are added to the Lord. They're added to the Lord. Christ people. Well, when you think about what just happened here, there's a need to be taught. There's a need to be discipled. Barnabas is just the right person here. He, he, he's, he's the right person to be the encourager. And we see more people, it seems like, are being added to the Lord. And now there's a lot and a lot of people here that need to be taught, need to be discipled. And, and Barnabas has the right person in mind. It's Saul of Tarsus. And you know, and I wonder as I, as I read Acts 9, 26 and 27. When he comes in there to Jerusalem and, you know, remember Barnabas was the one. The, 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 the Jerusalem apostles, disciples, said they, they didn't really want a whole lot of part of, of Saul after he was converted. Because they remember what he was like before he was converted and they just, they just didn't like that. And Barnabas was the man who came alongside and encouraged him, wasn't he? And brought him in. I wonder whether Ananias shared with Barnabas those words he heard from the Lord himself about this man Saul, that he was chosen by God to bear his name, the Lord's name, before Gentiles. Verse 15, Acts 9. Barnabas needs a ministry partner at this point. He can't do this all alone, nor should he do this all alone. And so he goes to Tarsus, looking, seeking, finding, finally finds him. And that's, you know, we, we left Saul in Acts 9, verse 30. He was in Tarsus. And it had been many years now that have gone by. But the text says here in 11 that when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And he was with him for a whole year. Notice, they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Okay, so this, this church of new converts, they were, they were starting, many of them were starting from ground zero. And they needed to be taught the foundational truths of Christ's life, his, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, his coming back. And the many doctrines, the wonderful doctrines that are found in... See, we've got the word to be able to do that with. They didn't have this word. But one of the things that they did have was an understanding. Saul especially. Remember Saul's... See, this is how God works. God used the life of Saul. I, I'm convinced of this. Saul was brought and trained up and one of the best. He had an understanding of the law. And he would be now as a new convert himself, not too many years now removed. He would be in a prime position to be able to, to teach and preach the word of God. And Barnabas would be right there alongside of him, encouraging, teaching, helping build up these new believers in the faith. I mean, picture these eager, hungry hearts, desirous to hear the word, ready to obey what the Lord had for them to do. The text says that these disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. 
I believe it's interesting here that at the end of 26 that we find this. It says, as a result of God's transforming work in Antioch in a year of teaching in the church, it became evident that the Christless culture of Antioch took notice of these disciples, so much so that they were dubbed Christ ones or Christ people or what we call today Christians. The name said it all. These disciples of the Lord attached themselves to Christ. They followed the way of Christ. They spoke of Christ. They purposed to live like Christ. Their lives were unmistakably characterized and marked by Christ. To this point, one writer asks a very pointed question. Why are you called a Christian? The name Christian means that you identify completely with Christ because you're his disciple. But for many Christians, this identification seems to apply only in a Sunday worship service. Mm. During the week, he says, many Christians appear to have put aside the Christian name tag that they display on Sundays when they sing praises to God, read scripture, pray, and listen to a sermon. How do some Christians live? Some live for the sake of money. Others are in the process of destroying their bodies through chemical dependence. And still others use vile and profane language as part of their daily speech. The question, why are you called a Christian, is personal and to the point. It makes many Christians blush. Why are you called a Christian? Maybe a good exercise to consider the answer to that question. Look at these last few verses of the text. Christ people living out the word. We got Christ people preaching the word. Christ people teaching the word. Discipling from the word. And we've got Christ people living out the word. Uh, don't lose the context here as you get into verse 27. Keep in mind what's been happening in Antioch. Preaching the word, teaching the word. And along comes these prophets from Jerusalem and Antioch. In these days, right? In these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. There were prophets in the church in the day. And these prophets came, one of them. We get word of one of them in verse 28. Agabus, he stands up. Agabus will show up later in the book of Acts. Okay, Acts chapter 21. Right here he shows up and he's got a word to speak about a coming great famine throughout the world. And Luke inserts here some fact which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. It gives us a little history. Claudius Caesar reigned from 41 to 54. Likely that this famine, this great famine spoken of, actually happened in somewhere around 45, 46. Okay? But the fact is, Agabus comes and he's speaking about this famine that is going to come. The focus here seems not to be so much on the prophets coming to town, but upon what God is doing and how his people respond to the message. You see, God is placing a need in the lap of his new Christ people in Antioch. How are they going to respond? Look at what the disciples in Antioch did upon hearing the news of the pending famine. It says, each according to his ability determined to send relief to his brethren dwelling in Judea. Now we need to understand something here about what's happened in Antioch and understand what's going on now with this need being presented to them. What are the dangers here? What, are, what could have happened here? You know, one writer presents this, and I believe in such a way that it's helpful for us to understand the condition of these new converts in Antioch. Because he says that the Christians 
first of all, they were Christians first of all before anything else. They could have been Gentiles first and only Christians second. In which case they would have said, we are Gentiles. Why should we send money to the Jews? They could have been pagans first and Christians second. In which case they would have said, why should we worry about anyone but ourselves? And actually they were neither of these. They were Christians first. And because they were Christians first, they felt a bond with all other believers and were determined to help them when the need arose. And the writer now turns the corner and he he points this toward each one of us and asks, are you a Christian first? Is that the most important thing about you? Are you happy most of all to be a follower of Jesus Christ? If you are, then the gospel will go forward. God will bless it. And many other people will be brought to the Lord Jesus Christ through your witness. Are you a Christian first? You know, this past week I came across a missionary family that lives in El Paso, Texas. I actually purchased a book for school coming up and anyway found out in the transaction that the she, particular family was writing a, a letter of thanks for purchasing their book saying that it was going to help the proceeds to support their missionary work. I was curious. I, inqu- I inquired. Found out some information. I was asking about their, their part and their connection to the church and how the church was helping them carry out what they were doing. And, and they're working with some Spanish radio stations uh, down, down near the Mexico border, in the state's border. And something something that, was, that was written really pierced my heart here as, as, as I was asking some questions and getting some really good feedback. One of the responses that, that was given was, we, we do have a local church that we're connected to but they do not financially support us or our ministry. And, and that's fine, and, and there's some ministries that maybe you're a part of in a local church that the church wouldn't necessarily support. I, I, that didn't necessarily cause me concern. The, the part that caused me concern was the next sentence. It said, it is, a, it is a Baptist church, and they tend to do only Baptist things. She went on and wrote, our mission is non-denominational with members from various denominations. We all sign a statement of faith. And I did happen to read their statement of faith, and it's solid. It's solid. I I put that forward as an example here of what we're talking about. Just just thinking about in this text, as we look at the text and as we see what we've been talking about. Are we a Christian first? Are, are Are there fences that we've erected as man? Are we looking at what God's word says here? See, because if there are needs, and in particular, if there are needs in a church, we see it here in Acts 11. There's going to be a need in the days ahead. This church in Judea, church of Jerusalem, they're not going to have what they need in order to continue on. And this need has been put forth. The prophet has come. Agabus, he's come and he's delivered this word. He's delivered the information. The question is, what are they going to do with the information they just heard from Agabus? Are they going to be a Christian first? Are they going to say, no, I'm, we're, we're Gentiles and that's a Jewish church and because that's a Jewish church, I'm... Church, we've got to be careful. 
And it's a reminder even. I was reminded in thinking about this situation with this missionary family. Just in light of the role of, of, of the offering box. There it is. It's sitting right over on the stage. The offering box. The purpose of such box. Yes, God calls us to give with a cheerful heart. And there are many passages in the scripture that speak to how we're to go about our giving. But as a church, I, I, I just encourage us this morning from the word, from what's coming out of the word, to, to be praying about what God might be doing. What opportunities is God bringing our way that might be an opportunity for us to serve another church, another body in particular, in another way? Are we praying together for opportunities to steward the funds that make their way into that box? That's one of the things that came to attention this morning as I'm thinking about the text. I think it would be important for us as a church to be prayerful of that. Not just putting money in an offering box. Not just paying for lights. But to be mindful of being, being prayerful about what that's going to be for, for God's kingdom. And I say that as one of the elders. And that's something that we're going to continue to talk about in light of this text here. I want to talk about that. I think it's important that we talk about it in light of the gospel continuing to move forward, church. Well, these offerings were sent to the Jerusalem church elders. Notice that. To the elders of the Jerusalem church by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Christ's people living out the word. Not only did each one sacrificially give, but Barnabas and Saul, they're leaving a good work here in the Lord in order to deliver the funds to the church in Jerusalem. Each one, according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. Not to those Jews living in Judea. It's the brethren living in Judea. Some 300 miles away, the brethren, they're going to help out, church. Do you hear this? Do you see this? They're going to help them. These new converts, they grasped that they were now on Christ's team. They were participants. They each determined in their hearts to send relief to the church in Judea, a Jewish church, unlike their own church in many ways. But according to his ability, each one participated. I was reading, have been reading the biography of George Mueller with the family. And it was interesting how the Lord led him to build many of these orphanages in, in Bristol uh, due to the need of housing greater numbers of orphans. And stories are told of some of the orphans who had very little, just a few pennies, in fact. When they caught wind of another orphanage needing to be built, it wasn't uncommon for one to approach Mr. Mueller and contribute his part, and in one instance, a sixpence. Mr. Mueller was grateful for the gift, and he made sure to record it in his journal of how God provided you see, church, the size doesn't matter. It's each one, according to his ability, participating in this together to meet a need God brings to them. Often, that's what we're reading about in the text. This need, God brought this need to the church. Serving the body of Christ at large. You know, it reminds me of what Paul writes in Romans 15. In Romans chapter 15. 26 and 27. For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. A little bit later on, Paul's going to be making a collection and taking it to Jerusalem. Right? Macedonia and Achaia and his travels. Listen to what he says. It pleased them indeed, those in Macedonia and Achaia. It pleased them. And they are their debtors, the saints in Jerusalem. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things, their duty is also to minister to them in material things. Do we see this? 
The Bible says this. And yet how often do we seem to ignore what the Bible says because we've got our own man-made fences and walls that we've built up? Are we Christians first? God is at work planting Christ people in the midst of what once was a Christ-less culture. And during these days of spiritual transformation, the darkness was being exposed by the light of Christ. Light had come to Antioch. And while there continued to be many, I'm sure, who still walked in darkness, the text leads us to believe that many gave up the charade of darkness, hiding. As new creations, they were now unashamed to walk in the light. They desired that their deeds be clearly seen. They long for others to see God working in them now. In short, they had received the power from on high and were engaged in being a witness to Jesus. God, church, he is still planting Christ people in Christless cultures today. He's still doing it. He's still in the business of saving the lost. He's still in the business of opening blind eyes and deaf ears. His word is still as living and active as it was when it was penned long ago. His word still has the power to save today. His word is still the truth that sets men free. His word still accomplishes the purpose for which it's sent. Do we believe these things? You see, the question is, who's getting Christ and his word out? Who's going to preach his word? Who's going to teach his word? Who's going to come alongside and be a Barnabas, an encourager to someone with the word of God? Who's going to live out this word for others to see? Who's going to let his light shine before men that others might see and think much of God in his glory? The Lord's still asking the question today, church. Whom shall I send and who will go? Anyone here? Is there anyone? Ready to say, here am I, Lord. Send me. I'm ready. Are you going to be a Christian first? Let's pray. Father, I'm reminded in your word of that passage in Revelation of what John saw gathered around the throne, around the Lamb, a multitude that it couldn't count. Tribes, peoples, tongues, nations. Father, if that is the picture. Father, I'm asking this morning that you would change our thoughts, change our patterns. Help us, Father, to think differently about people. People, these people that are made in your image. Father, I pray we would see things through the lens of your word that you would tear down walls, that you would tear down fences that need to be torn down, even here in this place. Father, may you, through your Holy Spirit, do the work that's needed. 
to bring us to a place, Lord, to move us to a place. Father, I pray your spirit would teach us. We'd be taught by your word. We'd be willing to hear what your word has to say. That we would then be willing to live that out. May we be about preaching and teaching your word, discipling and encouraging others from your word. And may we be ones who are living out this word. May we learn the example from what we're reading here in Acts chapter 11, 19 through 30. Father, by your Holy Spirit, I pray you would transform us as we endeavor to transform others with the power of the word of God. This power that still saves. This power that is mighty. Oh, Father, I pray we would be available, we'd be useful, we'd be a teachable vessel that you could use to continue moving the gospel forward. And that in the process, you get great glory. Thank you, Father, for your word. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.